Epicenter has taken the lead as they arrive to the final furlong. Zandon is coming after him. Epicenter and Zandon, the two stride for stride. Simplification down on the outside is next. Coming down the wire, Rich Strike is coming up the outside. Oh my goodness, the longest shot has won. Remember that guy, the podcast where we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present. Hey, I'm one of your hosts, James, and Cyberknife was robbed. Cyberknife was robbed, but you're not going to be robbed of a great episode. Thanks for tuning in. Diaz, back with you. And with us, we have a special guest that certainly would never miss the second leg of a Triple Crown. Please introduce yourself. Oh, definitely not. It's me, the very special guest, Xavier. And still, the best part of that was Rich Strike trying to eat the pony afterwards. Did you two see that? I did see that. Fantastic. Although I will contest... The best part is the split second, because it, it lasted maybe half a second, but there was a split second where we correctly called the trifecta at the front of the race. It was right there. It was right there. You know what killed me? So my girlfriend was in an office pool where it's just there's 20 of them, right? And they just randomly draw a number. You each put in 20 bucks. The winner takes all the money. She had Rich Strike. So technically got Rich Strike at far worse odds than you would on any book. She yeah. still won. That it's legitimately funny. crazy to me that a degenerate like you did not take that as a sign to, eh, yeah, let me throw five bucks down. Well, so what killed me was she mentioned this like three minutes before the race, like, oh, yeah, that's the horse I have in my pool. And I'm like, well, damn, I would have put something on him. But she treated us to a nice dinner. So it was, that was, that was, <laughs> that was good. I think my favorite statistic from all of it is that if you had spent the money that the owner paid for Rich Strike on a bet on him instead, you would have made more money than the owner won for Rich Strike winning the Kentucky Derby. Some very strong, um, why am I forgetting our golfer guy? Oh, Remember the Argentinian he, he, guy? He bet on himself in the British Open? Roberto Bet on yourself, uh, which is why we are disappointed that Rich Strike will not be making to the Preakness. There are some chances for Rich Strike to make some memories there. He has thrown that chance to the wind, so let's not talk about that anymore. Let's talk about who is making memories for us right now. So, making memories for me in another major upset from this previous weekend, but not much of an upset if you consider how important weight and height are in boxing, is Dimitri Bevel. So, Bevel with a big upset over Canelo in the light heavyweight championship fight from this past weekend's. Bevel was running at about a 4 or 5 to 1 underdog entering the fight, but it was one of those that, after watching the first, honestly, two rounds of the fight, it was very clearly obvious that Bevel was going to win just because Canelo I, is still, he's fallen in pound for pound rankings, but I think that's not fair because at his natural weight, he's still the most dominant of any boxer, I think. And I think he's to be commended for trying to go up in weight to take on a true light heavyweight like Bevel, but. It was very clear after two rounds that A, Canelo's power is not having any effect on Bevel, and B, Canelo has no answer to get inside on Bevel's jab. And it was it was just a very impressive victory, and all the credit in the world to the judges for not getting it wrong, although they really wanted to, because they basically, I'm pretty sure, if so when the official scorecards were released, the first four rounds for each judge were given yeah. to Canelo at best for Canelo. It was 2-2 two, two after 4. So they tried to gift wrap it to him as much as possible, but Bevel just dominated the fight, and to, to beat not only Canelo, but to also beat the judges in a sport that, as much as I love it, is horrifically corrupt, 
just a really impressive victory by Beagle. More, and more or less corrupt than soccer, just to give me some or, context. Or, more, more corrupt than soccer. Well, because you can, the, the scoring is subjective. So, you know, in soccer, if something happens and you see a team that looks like they're just not playing to give up a whole bunch of goals, it's really easy to quantify that. In boxing, because it's three people who are all doing subjective scoring, that's the thing. There are stats, you know, power punches, jabs, how much lands versus thrown, but it's still in the end a subjective sport where you can have one judge completely throw everything off with a crazy scorecard. I mean, we've seen it in the past with Triple G's fights versus Canelo, where I'm a firm believer that Triple G won both of those fights. But at least the first one where I thought it was very obvious, you have an insane card that is what, 118 to 112 or something like that? from uh, 118 Judge, to 110 was one of the cards. From, 10 from, from, yeah, from, from Judge Bird in a fight that Triple G, I felt like he dominated. So whenever you have a subjective scoring, it's much easier to be corrupt. I mean, this is also, to be fair, the sport that Don King was a part of. So, like, yeah, I guess it checks out that that is the most corrupt sport. Well, it's it's not even necessarily anything insidious. Like, I'm not saying people are taking bribes, but, like, you just got to follow the money train. Like, a, a bigger gate for the fight and more pay-per-view buys means more money to the commission, means that the judges are going to get paid more, not by even any underhanded means, but you build up a popular fighter... More people buy the pay-per-view. More people come to see them fight. You can charge more for the tickets. Everybody gets paid more when there's a true superstar like that. So, like I said, all the credit in the world to Beevil. And he was very... I, I loved how humble he was in his interview. You could tell... So, Beevil is a uh, native of Russia. And English is, like, just very much not his strong suit. But nonetheless, he gave as good of a post-fight interview as he possibly could. You know, asked the translator to clarify for him when he wasn't sure exactly what they're asking, but gave all all the credit. And my favorite quote he said was, you know, did he ever hurt you at any point? And he said, he hurt my arms because he was, Canelo could not get to the head because he was blocking with his shoulders. He said, he hurt my oh, arms, okay. but better, better my arms than my head. So was that, was, did, did we interpret that as a dig? Was that like him trying to, trying to talk some smack? I didn't take it that way. I took it okay. as just like. This is, hey, I'm, I'm being earnest. He hurt my arms. Like, he yeah. was wailing on my arms, but better my arms than my head. So, Dimitri Bivol, very impressive performance. Hopefully, get the unification bout with better Biev. That's probably one of the top fights I want to see in boxing right now. Bivol, better Biev. And hopefully, this, this shouldn't stop Canelo Triple G3 from happening either. So, Canelo was talking about the rematch clause. Canelo, I'm telling you, man, the rematch won't be any different. If anything, it'll be worse for you. Just go back down to a natural weight, fight Triple G, give him the legacy match. But uh, Dimitri Bivol, congratulations and uh, making memories for me. Well, there we go. As always, fighting correspondent Diaz reporting to you from the front lines of the ring. Xavier, how you doing? Not, not as great. Uh, <laughs> we are recording this on Thursday, and I just finished watching Arsenal get completely boat raced by Tottenham in the North London Derby. It always sucks to lose a North London derby. Doubly sucks when a win today would have clinched Champions League for the first time in six years. Uh, it triply sucks that the game was, was pretty even until a soft penalty was given to Spurs. And then, like, four minutes later, one of our guys got sent off. And then it was just downhill from there. In the second half, another center back got subbed off through injury. So we finished the game 
with zero central defenders <laughs> on the pitch is it's not what you want. It's not it, ideal. It honestly, could not have gone worse. You, you have the the big loss. You have the red card. You have the injuries. The only positive to really take from it is that the two games left, Arsenal are still one point ahead of Tottenham. If we win our last two games, then this doesn't matter. It's a Pyrrhic victory for Spurs. Doesn't doesn't matter. We're probably going to be favored in the last two games, but maybe not having any center backs for Monday's game makes me a little more nervous. We are playing Diaz's Newcastle, and even with Newcastle's super uh, Saudi oil money now, I think Arsenal are still the better team, but it's not going to be easy, especially with all the injuries we have now. What I would say as a counter to that is Newcastle having just secured safety. Really, I mean, there's there's nothing for Newcastle to play for in these last. You, couple you games. guys did clear relegation. We are officially mathematically safe. Awesome. We've, I mean, more or less, I've felt safe for the past probably two months. But it is nice when you know there is no catastrophe that could potentially result in our relegation anymore. But I mean, to your point, Xavier, like I do, Newcastle is a much more dangerous team than when we faced off earlier in the year, but. We got a few players with some nicks. You know, Trippier just came back from his injury. Kyle Wilson just came back from his injury. John Joe Shelby uh, is now going to be out for the rest of the season. So I could very easily see a world where we play the the quote-unquote B team against you. Not that I ever want to gift wrap anything to Arsenal. But I think at this point, the priority is the health of our players going into next season uh, when we could potentially build for at least a top 10 finish, if not pushing for Europe. So... I wouldn't be too worried about that game. If Newcastle wants to be on the beach for Monday, I will take that with both hands. So right now, the last two games of the season for both teams, Arsenal right now are on 66 points, Tottenham are on 65. Uh, Tottenham have a vastly superior goal difference, so if they end tied, Tottenham will take that, that spot and take the last Champions League spot. So on Sunday, Tottenham played Burnley, who are in 17th in fighting relegation. Arsenal on Monday play Newcastle, who are safe. Then on the last day of the season, which is the 22nd, uh, the Sunday, Arsenal play Everton, who are 16th and fighting relegation. And Tottenham play Norwich, who are last and have already been relegated. So I, I don't expect Tottenham to, to drop any points. I mean, Burnley sometimes can be, can be tough. But based on how they played today, I don't expect them to drop any points. If we beat Newcastle, I don't expect us to, 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 to fail to beat Everton at home. But this Newcastle game is stressing me out a lot more than I otherwise would have thought of at any other point in the season, just, just based on the context of, oh, we just got absolutely wrecked by our rival. We cannot afford any hangover. We can't, even if we have no center backs, we, just gotta, we still got to find a way to win. Who knows? Maybe by, by Monday, Tottenham will have dropped points to Burnley. And Arsenal will have won, and I'll be feeling a lot better. But for right now, pretty stressed out. Maybe the Rangers well, do better tomorrow. You should be stressed out because, like, if it's a tie, we're gonna have the two of you fight to determine the outcome. There's only one way. So, like, there is some stress that that you should be feeling, Xavier, on that front. I would prefer not having to fight Diaz because if we tie Newcastle, it's I feel like it's pretty much over for us anyway. So. Then for multiple reasons, let's hope that Arsenal wins for, for your body's safety, uh, for your spot in the Champions League, and because Diaz has other things on his mind with the Sixers right now. I would like to share with you guys an athlete on my mind real quick. Do you all yeah. remember 
Ravens legend Danny Woodhead. Uh, he was Ravens a Jets legend. UDFA. He was a Jets he's legend a Jets first. Jets legend. He's a Patriots legend. A Chadron State. Danny Woodhead, when he retired from football, decided he was not done with sports. Did you know that Danny Woodhead is currently trying to qualify for the Masters? Love it. No way. Sorry, not the Masters, the U.S. Open. He just recently, in Omaha, Nebraska, this week at the Omaha Country Club, got through what is the anti-penultimate round of qualifying matches. So basically the way that Hillary Lunky got into her spot in the LPGA, he is just as close right now as Hillary Lunky was, essentially, to try and qualify into the PGA. He shot an even par at the Omaha Country Club, 71, and... I really don't have much more to add other than just I was absolutely tickled when I found out that Danny Woodhead is actively trying to, to qualify. I love that. Reminds me of Tony Romo going for the for the U.S. Open qualification. I would love to see, like, so they, they do, like, the, the match now. And, you know, they're, what they're doing this time is they're doing the old-time quarterbacks, Brady and Rodgers versus the new guys with Josh Allen and mm-hmm. I think Mahomes, right? I think it's Mahomes, Mahomes and Allen, yeah. How about we do the same thing, but with the actual football players that are, like, semi-legitimate golfers? Like, I would love to see, like, Romo and Woodhead just absolutely massacring Brady and Rodgers out there. I'm mad that Charles Barkley has not been involved in the challenge yet. I just really want Charles Barkley to be the absolute ratings delight that he would be for that competition is, is nuts to me. Well, you, you, you do Chuck versus Shaq is what you do. That's exactly what you do. God damn it. That's exactly what you do. I would love to see Shaq swing a golf club because I think out of 100 shots, probably 99 of them are going to be horrible. But he will unleash like a 450-yard drive at least once. I don't think it's out of the question that Shaquille O'Neal could become better at driving a golf ball than he was at shooting free throws. Oh, very easily. Specifically driving, yes. I think his short game would be horrific. I think his putting would probably be erratic, but dude could easily get up over 400 yards consistently on a drive. It would be one of the most memorable things I think we'd ever get a chance to see, but right now, all credit to Danny Woodhead, who is actually going out there and doing the work to make those memories. And all of this, I think, also leads us just wonderfully into what our returning champion. First ever returning champion, uh, well, first ever for him, returning champion, Xavier, <laughs> uh, has to bring up this week. Thanks, James. Uh, so going along with what Danny Woodhead has you know, been trying to do, the topic that I thought of for today was multi-sport athletes. You know, we hear a lot about Bo Jackson and all the things he did in football and baseball, but there are plenty of guys who were just guys who happened to play multiple sports. Not superstars, you know, not the greatest of all time, but really fucking athletic and able to do multiple things. And so that's what I wanted to talk about. Originally, I was thinking about bringing uh, Mr. Mike Henry, a.k.a. Sexual Chocolate, but our good friend and wrestling correspondent, Mr. Medicinal, told me that he was too good to be a guy. So I had to, I had to back off that one a bit. Mark Henry is a legend of the of the WWE industry. Also a champion there. powerlifter and has the yes. nickname Sexual Chocolate, which is incredible. Classic triple threat. I would love to get into a debate at some point on who is the greater sexual chocolate between Mark Henry and Daryl Dawkins. Daryl Dawkins is Chocolate Thunder. He's not sexual chocolate. 
Chocolate Thunder. No, you're He's right. Chocolate you're Thunder, right. just like the ice cream flavor that the Franklin Fountain was commissioned to make because I was friendly enough with a representative from the Sixers who came into the store one day. That is my <laughs> crowning achievement in the world of ice cream. The Daryl Dawkins Memorial R.I.P. Chocolate Thunder ice cream flavor for the Sixers. <laughs> no, I'm good at that, though. That's incredible, but you know we're we're not talking about Mark Henry or uh, Daryl Dawkins here. The person that I want to talk about is Aaron Erstad. So you you you'll probably remember Darren Erstad after I, after I start talking about him. But okay, so Darren Erstad was born June fourth, nineteen seventy four, in Jamestown, North Dakota, which what a is town. a small town that is smack dab in the middle of the Fargo to Bismarck corridor on I ninety four. Seriously, if you look at a map, it's exactly one and a half hours from Fargo and one and a half hours from Bismarck. Absolute prime real estate location. In the middle of nowhere, North Dakota, for some reason, they were able to produce more than one professional athlete from this very small town in the middle of North Dakota. Darren Erstad, in high school, he was a kicker and punter on the football team. He set school record with a 50-yard field goal. He also played hockey and had 36 goals and 24 assists in just 26 games. Additionally, he was a state champion track athlete, winning the state title in both the 110 and 300 meter hurdles. None of these were Erstad's first love. Erstad loved baseball. He couldn't play in high school because Jamestown didn't have enough people to field a team. This is the classic issue with baseball. It, it takes a lot of people to play baseball. They had a football team, but not a baseball team. That's true. Hmm. They're different seasons. Why can't you just make all the football guys do baseball? You see, you would think you would think that. But what he did do was he played American Legion baseball, which is amateur league baseball that is essentially for areas that don't have enough people for high school leagues. They kind of just grab as many people as they can and have like travel teams big in the Midwest. Uh, especially the Dakotas. I think it was founded in South Dakota. In 1992, on his American Legion team, he hits 492 with 18 home runs, 86 RBIs, and the pitcher goes 10-2 with a 2.18 ERA. He gets named uh, the AP North Dakota Athlete of the Year for 1992. And although it is North Dakota, still, he got he gets to say that he was named the, the Athlete of the Year for an entire state. Absolutely. And I mean, it's a state where, like, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot more to do than sports based on the description of this guy so far. And again, like, really weirdly, three years later, an, uh, for after he's born, another professional athlete is born in Jamestown as well, Travis Hafner. So Travis Hafner, I know. Okay. So, yeah. So I, like... so, I, so I don't know what's up with Jamestown, but some, somehow they did this. So after high school, Erstad goes to the University of Nebraska on a baseball scholarship. After his freshman season... Uh, the baseball team was training by playing indoor football uh, as part of a winter conditioning because Nebraska, very cold in the winter. They couldn't, play, they couldn't really play baseball. So what, what did they do? They played football instead. So Erstad loved to kick during these training games. He missed being a kicker back when he was in high school. So some of his friends on the baseball team filmed him and sent the tapes to the football office. Very soon after the 1994 Orange Bowl, where Nebraska lost the national championship 18-16 to inspiration of this, uh, of this topic, Charlie Ward uh, in the Florida State Seminoles, a last-second missed field goal, legendary coach Tom Osborne sees these tapes and calls Darren Erstad into his office. 
This is now a track star who kicked and played football, but loved baseball the most, so went to go join a baseball team, and while doing that, dicked around playing football because he missed it so much that he accidentally got recruited to an NCAA team. Yes, and don't forget the hockey, too. He was a great hockey player in high school as well. My apologies. Yes, also an excellent hockey player. So Tom Osborne asks Erstad if he'd be willing to kick and punt for the Cornhuskers football team. Erstad later said, quote, I can only think, wow, I had no clue about punting at that level. But Coach Dan Young, uh, the Huskers kicking coach, worked with me on my footwork, and we got things figured out. As for place kicks, I just kicked the heck out of the ball and hoped it was okay. I like this guy very much. (laughs) So... After he gets called in, you know, to, you know, to Tom Osborne's office, this is about some, sometime January, February of, of 1994. He still plays in the baseball season, which is from February to May. He had to have his scholarship switched from a baseball scholarship to a football scholarship because the baseball scholarship didn't allow you to play two sports. The football one did. It's an odd. That's incredibly count. stupid. NCAA. It's what they do. I guess because there's more scholarships on a football team, maybe? I would assume that's probably the reason, Maybe the thinking is, well, you're already doing the most violent thing you could possibly be doing. What's the harm in letting you do something else? So he finishes his sophomore season uh, of of college baseball, and then he goes to the Cape Cod League for the summer. At this time, he's still prepping for the football season, too, because... He has to become a place kicker and punter for the first time at the college level in just a couple months. And while practicing this, he plays for the Fallmouth Commodores. He's the MVP of the 1994 summer season. Also later gets inducted into the Cape Cod League Hall of Fame in 2001. He just crushes this league for the summer while on the side practicing being a, a totally different sport. So now we get to the 1994 football season. And so Nebraska fans and the program had called the season the unfinished business. You know, after this, the disappointment of the Orange Bowl loss to Florida State. Start off the season with a 31 to nothing beatdown of number 24 West Virginia at the kickoff classic in the Meadowlands. In his first college action, Erstad punts three times for a, an average of 48.3 yards. And so Nebraska... They just absolutely run through the regular season this year. They win every every game in the regular season by double digits, including a 49 to 21 win over number 13 UCLA, a 17 to 6 win at number 16 Kansas State, and a 24 to 7 win against number two Colorado uh, in a massive rivalry game. That would During been, this, that would have been when Cordell was there, I think probably. So that's the next that's the next thing. During this Colorado game, Nebraska's defense uh, held Heisman Trophy candidate uh, QB Cordell Stewart and future Heisman-winning running back Rashawn Salam in check. But Salam didn't give all the credit to the defense. Speaking to the LA Times after the game, he said, quote, Darren Erstad kept us pinned deep in our territory early. We opened with three consecutive three and outs, starting from our two, 25, and 16-yard lines. That was the first time we'd been shut out in the first half. Darren Erstad is really good at pinning, pinning teams within their own 20 and, and 10. Even in high school, you're saying he never punted. Like, even then, he was only place-kicking? As far as I'm aware, you know, there's a good chance that maybe he that he was also punting for in in, in high school too. But it's a completely different skill set in in high school versus versus college. And as Ersted said, he had no clue about punting at that level. So it was essentially a, a, a new learned you know ability. 
even if he did have some high school experience doing that. Um, so during this season, Erstad has 50 punts, uh, averages 42.6 yards, which was 14th best in the country. And opponents only averaged 2.9 yards per return. He booms a 68-yarder against Iowa State and a 73-yarder against Oklahoma. He's also the backup kicker and long-range specialist, so they bring him in for the 40-plus yard field goals, and he goes perfect 10 from 10 from uh, PAT and kicks three 45-plus yarders during the season. He also plays a dual role as the scout team quarterback during the season, uh, a position that he really liked. He said... The competition in the scrimmages was so intense. Nobody was very friendly during those workouts. I just tried to hold my own with them. So now we have this baseball player slash punter slash backup kicker also playing scout team quarterback against Nebraska's first team defense. He's a pitcher. He's got a strong arm. I feel like the baseball coach would not be very thrilled at all to hear. Actually, he was. The baseball coach told him you should do this. Because he thought it would be great for him. The baseball, the baseball coach specifically told him to do this. To I have, specifically I have be the one, scout team quarterback. To do anything that Tom Osborne asked him to do. I have a very specific question for you, Xavier. Because I want to have a mental image of this guy in my head. Do we know which arm he throws with? And do we know which leg he kicks with? Because I'm trying to figure out... He's a this is a person who has two much stronger limbs than their counterparts. And I want to know how they're arranged on his body. Aaron Erstead is a lefty. For both? He's, yes, and he's he's 6'2", so he's not a small guy by any stretch of the imagination. Funny, uh, he admitted that he didn't have many other football skills outside of kicking, and uh, noted that he remembered the most was trying to make a tackle on a UCLA returner. But I thought I had him lined up in my sights. I mean, I, I, mean, I zeroed in on him. Hit him and bounced off like it was nothing. <laughs> Got to get low and sink the hips there. <laughs> you know, he could kick, not, not a tackler. He, although he did get four tackles, so he, 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 got the, he has those in the, in, in, in the, on the stat sheet. But um, 1994 season, Nebraska gets right back the Orange Bowl. Undefeated regular season, get to face Miami this time, another Florida team. Miami gets off to a quick 10-0 lead. Nebraska's offense stalls. Erstad booms a 54-yarder to pin Miami inside the 10. After two penalties, Miami is forced to punt it right back, and Nebraska gets great field position at the Miami 40. They score five plays later to make it 10-7, going into halftime. After safety cuts it to an eight-point game later on in the third quarter, Nebraska again forced to punt. This time, he pins them inside the four-yard line. Once again, they go three and out and have to punt it back. Nebraska gets the ball again at the Miami 40. And within three plays, they have scored and made the two-point conversion to tie the game. And then Nebraska goes on to win it with a touchdown in the last three minutes, getting their first national title in 24 years. Baron Erstad is a national champion in, in football with the Nebraska Cornhuskers. And one thing that's great because we hate Penn State, Penn State was the number two team in the country that year and should have played Nebraska, but... They were contractually obligated to play in the Rose Bowl. So despite going undefeated, (laughs) and Joe Pod do not get the national championship that year. That's great. Couldn't happen to to a uh, a better organization. A more deserving program. Thank you, Darren Erstad, and your very key punting in the national championship game. But Erstad 
can't spend too much time celebrating his, his championship because the season has gone to January now and baseball season starts in six weeks. Aaron Erstad, he's ready and just demolishes the competition in his junior, his, in his junior season of baseball. He hits 410, uh, leading the Big 8 conference in both average and hits with 103. He has 19 homers and 79 RBIs in just 60 games. He gets named a first-team All-American and a finalist for the Golden Spikes Award. He's wasting no time in just saying, hey, I can win at two, th- at two things. Now, I know a Golden Spikes Award winner who is a punter that tackled Christian McCaffrey once. Did you know that, that Adley Rutschman tackled Christian McCaffrey once? <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> Adley Rutschman tackled Christian McCaffrey on a, on a punt return in an Oregon State University-Stanford game once. Pretty it's incredible. incredible. It's incredible to think, like, the difference in the career arc as it relates to age of a football player versus a baseball player because, like, Adley hopefully getting set to get called up pretty soon. Christian McCaffrey arguably passed his prime. (laughs) I'm going to say it out loud and try and put this energy into the world. He may debut tonight when this episode goes up on Monday. Speaking into existence, LeVar Ball. After the season... Erstad had held, held the Nebraska record for most hits, runs, and RBIs in a single game with six for each, most hits and total bases in a single season with 103 and 194, and most career hits with 261. And because we all love well-rounded guys, Erstad was also a two-time academic All-Big 8 selection. Focusing on football, baseball, and his studies, Erstad is crushing it What did he major in? Wish I knew. I tried to figure it out. I, re- I couldn't find it. Nebraska, you got to up your bios. Try to find it in the Nebraska bio, and it, it did not say. You'd think that someone who did so much for Nebraska would have a, a better bio for him. I may interject. Did not graduate with his degree, however, did eventually go back and complete a business degree after a playing career was finished. This is the kind of hard right. research that, that we can bring to you live. That sounds about right. <laughs> after the baseball season ended, ended in May, Osborne tries to get Erstad to come back to the football team. Uh, it, it's one of those things where the 1995 Nebraska team wins another championship and is considered one of the greatest of all time. But Erstad, you know, he felt he had accomplished all he had set out to do in college. So instead of staying an extra year just to play football, he already won a title. He just he decides to enter the MLB draft. Where he gets picked number one overall by the California Angels. So now he is a... NCAA football national champion and the number one overall pick in the MLB draft. Not a bad start before you're even technically a professional. After one half season with the Lake Elsinore Storm, because, you know, he, he joins them in June, halfway through the minor league season, he starts the 1996 season with the AAA Vancouver Canadians of the uh, PCL. He hits 305 in 85 games before earning his first major league call up halfway through the season. Despite only playing half of a season with the Angels, he finishes sixth in the Rookie of the Year voting that year. 1997 gets his first full season. It's 299, OBP of 360, and OPS plus of 112 as the Angels' full-time first baseman. In 1998... His, his slugging uh, was like 650 then. It was pretty, it, it was pretty high. Uh, That's absurd. So in 1998, they shift him between first base and left field. He plays 70 games at each position. He hits 296 with 19 homers and 82 RBIs, adds in 20 steals, and gets named to his first All-Star team. Things are looking pretty good for young Darren Erstad. 
has a bit of a slump at 99, uh, still splitting time between first base and outfields. Falls down a little bit, star fades. But in 2000, Angels decide to move him back to outfield full-time. He responds with his best season. In 2000, Darren Erstad hits 355 with 25 homers, 100 RBIs, 28 stolen bases, OPS plus of 137. Really good season. It only took him 61 games to get 100 hits, which was the fastest anyone had done that since 1934. He was also the first leadoff hitter to ever get 100 RBIs in a season. Wow. Yeah, that's impressive. What season is this? This is 2000. It was like Mo Vaughn could have been there. You're going to have Tim Salmon and Mo Vaughn far down there in the order. You're going to have Scott Spears was the DH. Apparently was batting nine sometimes. Okay. Yeah. Word. And, you know, at the same time, Erstad is a stellar defender. He wins a gold glove in the outfield along with his silver slugger award and gets his second all-star appearance. This has been a really great season. And at this point, it seems like the 26-year-old Erstad was primed for superstardom. Never really reaches those heights again, but he does settle in as a, you know, a solid hitter, a great defender. In 2002, he leads all outfielders in range factor and wins his second gold glove. You know, despite a so-so regular season from the plate, he plays a starring role in the playoffs. In the ALDS against the Yankees, he hits 421. And then in the ALCS against the Twins, he hits 364. So now we get to the 2002 World Series, Angels against the Giants. And so in Game 6, with the Angels losing 5-3 in the 8th inning and facing elimination, Erstad kicks off a rally with a leadoff home run, sparking the Angels to a come-from-behind 6-5 victory, forcing a Game 7 in Anaheim. Now in Game 7, Angels are up 4-1. It's the ninth inning. Giants are able to get two men on against closer Troy Percival, and Kenny Lofton is at the plate. He's able to get Kenny Lofton, Lofton to fly out to right center, where Darren, Darren Erstad catches the final out for the Angels' World Series title. Erstad is now a NCAA football national champion and a World Series title winner. Has anyone else ever done that before? I didn't see anyone else. But it, honestly, it wouldn't surprise me if someone had, but I know that Darren Erstad did, which is what I care about the most. Because Disney is weird, they did sell the Angels literally right after this. I don't know why you would sell a team that just won a World Series, but that's why we have Art Moreno in the league now. Because Disney won a World Series and then sold their team to Art Moreno for not a lot of money. Not a good move on Disney's part. Probably not. And, you know, these, these Angels teams were still pretty good on, you know, the first couple of years of the Art Moreno reign. In 2004, Erstad makes the transition back to first base full-time, and he becomes the first and so far only player to win a gold glove in both the outfield and the infield when he wins it at first base this season. Plays a couple more seasons with the Angels before spending his last three seasons with the White Sox and Astros. During his time with the Astros, um, he and Chris Cost became the first two players born in North Dakota to play together on the same team in MLB history. Shout out to Philly's legend, Chris Cost. Chris Coast. Chris Coast. Uh, my apologies. Magic E. <laughs> so Erstad retires in 2010. Fun fact, he was on the 2015 Hall of Fame ballot and received exactly one vote. I wish I could find the one baseball writer that said, Darren Erstad should be in the Hall of Fame because... I love the fact that it was one person who did it. And I hope it was just like the Fargo news or something, because that would be great. I agree with that person. I think they should be in. 
So after retiring, uh, Erstad goes back to Nebraska, uh, volunteers as a coach for the baseball team. Within one year of volunteering, he is named the head coach of the team. They're really good under him. You know, when he played, despite you know his his talents, they never made the NCAA tournament. Uh, they don't have like one of the one of the top teams historically. But in eight seasons, it's a record of two sixty seven and one ninety three. Leads Nebraska to a Big Ten Conference Championship in 2017 when he also won the Big Ten Coach of the Year and leads them to four NCAA tournament appearances. So now we have Aaron Erstad, the NCAA football champion, the World Series champion, and high-level Big Ten Coach of the Year baseball coach. He did step down in 2019, said, you know, enough's enough, and has kind of decided to just spend some time with his family now. But Darren Erstad... Fantastic multi-sport guy, champion in both of the ones that he, you know, really spent the most time in, champion in track. Don't know if he won a state title in hockey in, as, in high school, but I would love it if he did, so I could just say he was a champion in all four, but he was a really good guy in these things. Before you wrap on Erstad, I there was a player that I thought who could have qualified, and they technically do, in a way, if we're going to consider that UCF is a national champion in college football. And by the same logic, the 1987 Florida State Seminoles team was selected national champion by the Berryman QPRS system. <laughs> uh, and Deion Sanders, of course, featured on that team and then went on to win a World Series. So that would be the only other one that, that, I, that we can say could potentially meet the criteria. I think that's a great one because I think linking Darren Erstad and Deion Sanders for all time, why not take that opportunity? Thank you, Barryman, for giving Both us this. care about coaching young people. That's awesome. A, a 135 OPS plus and like 28 stolen bases while playing, I mean, good enough first base to eventually be shifted to the outfield and not be a negative. That's just a really good ball player. He got Man. shifted back. It was... First base, and then outfield, and first base, and then outfield, and then first base. Well, and before all that, of course, it was punting in a national championship game where you, like, you could be a punter that didn't really matter in a national championship game. If your team's really good, your your punter might never come out, but he made an actual impact in that game. Yeah, I mean, he, he made enough of an impact where, in summaries about the national championship game, they make special note of... His ability to pin Miami deep, and also the Heisman Trophy winner of that season, talked about how he stalled, that he crushed their offense by pinning them deep in the big regular season game between the two of them when they were ranked number two and number three. He wasn't just there to, you know, stand around. He was actually doing stuff as a guy who had not punted before that, really. All right, so Darren Erstad had a very distinguished baseball career. Um, I want to talk about a guy who had a much less distinguished baseball career, although a baseball career nonetheless, very much more known for his exploits on the track. I am talking about the only person to ever have the title of pinch runner on their MLB card, Herbert Lee Washington. I could not have told you that anyone has ever had pinch runner on their card. This is this is so good. I'm you like it. Herbert Lee Washington, the only player to ever have pinch runner as their position officially listed on their J- baseball J- card. Jared Dyson should. Or no, uh, Terrence Gore. Terrence Gore is who I mean. 
Terrence Gore, but at least Terrence Gore can ostensibly do other things on a baseball field. And we'll get into to good old Herbert. So Herbert Lee Washington, born November 16, 1951 in Belzoni, Mississippi, but he's much more known as a Michigan man. While he's an infant, his family moves up to Flint. Both of his parents, as you know, the, the industry is so huge in Michigan, they both go to work for local automobile industries. Um, so we already are getting an early introduction to the, the value of speed in Herbert's life. Uh, Herbert actually goes to work at the factories with his parents for a couple summers in high school. Very quickly learns that that is not what he wants to be doing with his life. So his freshman year, he attends Flint Northern High. And it's discovered in the summer after this that due to the zoning, he actually should not be able to go to this high school. So he's instead transferred to Flint Northern High's most fierce rival, Flint Central High. <laughs> okay, so he gets, he gets fucking Mighty Ducks like the one kid? He, it's, um, he was not quite north enough, but he was central. So he does go to Flint Central High uh, where Coach Carl Krieger discovers him, and uh, this is really the genesis of Herbert's track career. So, as Herbert says it, the direct quote, I had raw speed and bad form, but my world was about to take on new dimensions. Coach Krieger had a vision and got me to believe. He said the only thing holding me back was me. Coach Krieger also wants to give as much credit to Herbert, though. So Coach Krieger says, Herb is good because he is intensely competitive. He has drive and concentration. Herb has superb legs and he trains hard. He's an intense listener and follows directions. There's not much more you can ask. We have this clay that is Herbert Lee Washington, and it needs to be molded into the sprinter that Coach Krieger knows that he can become. And an early point in his career where he really gets to see for himself how well he can perform and how good of a runner that he can be is there is a uh, local race for the 50-yard dash where Charlie Green, who would go on to compete in the, the following Olympics, and Herbert is just 16 years old at this point. But in the 50-yard dash, they both run equivalent 5.1 seconds. Now, race organizers give the win to Charlie. Uh, Coach Krieger says up and down, there was pictures in the paper the next day that definitively proved Herbert did win this race. So at 16 years old, already competing with Olympic level athletes and winning, but you know, the organizers were not quite willing to admit that quite yet. So he does have to settle for a second place. But he he does run that 50 yard dash in 5.1 seconds, which would be an unofficial world record. Uh he's only a junior at this point. Two um, people tied with what would be an unofficial world record at this race. 5.1. So it's also it's important to, to to clarify within the track field, the 50-yard dash at the time was not a common event and currently is not raced anymore. The shortest race you're going to really see anymore is the 100 meter. Okay. So I don't want to call it a novelty per se, but it's certainly not a popular race. At any rate, and, you know, to, to, to speak to this, it goes beyond just the ability to run. What Coach Krieger said about... Herbert after this race was Charlie Green is noted for trying to unnerve his opponents. And he tried it on Herb in Milwaukee, but it didn't work. Herbert, very focused, quite literally in this sport, stay in your lane. He stayed in his lane, just focused on running. What really gets attention for him is going into his senior year, 
he runs the 100-yard dash in 9.3 seconds. This really sets off some alarms for a lot of people. Now, granted, he only ran track, but he's also getting interest uh, from football teams that want to try to recruit him to be a wide receiver. He, again, runs that same 5-1. This time, it's an officially timed race. So the, the distinction to make here is that when he raced against Charlie Green, this was not considered a sanctioned race, so was not eligible for the world record. But he duplicates that same 5.1 in the 50-yard dash, which does establish the world record. So as a high school senior, he's already setting a world record. And a really cool thing that he then goes on to do uh, his high school senior year is there's a showcase known as the Golden West Showcase. Think of this as the McDonald's All-American game, but for track and field. So among the people that he races against here are Tommy Smith and John Carlos. Uh, oh, nice shit go on to have the 68 Olympics protest. So there's a, there's a lot of a lot of attention getting thrown to Herbert, and uh, he does end up getting some scholarship offers. The most intriguing offer would keep him local, and that would send him to Michigan State. And uh, what Herbert said reflecting upon this is he was discussing it with his parents, and he says, my dad once told me, if Michigan State is dumb enough to offer you a scholarship, you better be smart enough to come home with a degree. <laughs> Herbert takes that to heart, um, and an- another big consideration was black athletes, and c- consider in, in the time frame where we're at, this is the late 60s, early 70s, we've made some progress, there's still a lot of progress to be made, even today, but especially then, but what really attracted Herbert to Michigan State was the presence of black athletes within the athletics programs and the presence of black people in prominent positions at the university. So his freshman year, 1970, Clifton R. Wharton was named the first black president in Michigan State history. This is also significant because he was the first black president of a major university, so named in 1970. The football team, also very well known for their prowess at this time. They won back-to-back national titles in 65 and 66, the 66 team was the first one to start a majority, to have a start, the, the majority of their starting lineup be black athletes. 12 starters between offense and defense were black for the 66 Michigan State team. So they're the first to do that and to win a college football national championship. Uh, and they were led by a black quarterback by the name of Jimmy Ray. So Herbert looks at this university, looks at these programs and says, this is a place where I feel I can be accepted and be myself. So we go now to his freshman year. He is competing in the NCAA Indoor 60 Finals Championship. And the two top names going into this are Herbert and John Carlos. We come out the gates, Herbert gets a great jump. He's out in front and Herbert says he's never been chased down in his life. He says, if I get a lead, nobody's catching me. I'm holding on to that lead. Except for this fateful day where John Carlos does run him down and ultimately wins that title. So Herbert finishes second, and Herbert, reflecting on this, says, I've never been run down from behind. I'm in tears. And right afterwards, as I'm in tears, Carlos comes up to me and says, schoolboy, you just stopped running. I never forgot that. He certainly never forgot that. Their next race would come in the 47th running of the Michigan State Relays. Washington is they're talking some smack back and forth. And stadium is absolutely packed. This is the most anticipated race of the day. 
Washington described it as a circus environment. Talking about it, he said Carlos had this crazy hat that he'd lost. He was mad about that. He said, when he got to the starting blocks, I'm coming into your own house and I'm going to whip you. Barber said back, Los, I'm not a freshman anymore. You'll be second tonight. Unless you lose your concentration, then you might be third or fourth. So we go into the race. He says he gets a beautiful start to describe it. He says, after the first 40, I couldn't feel my legs touch the ground. It was almost like I was in flight. When I crossed the line, Coach Krieger and Coach Bibbs grabbed me. It was pandemonium. I had beaten the great John Carlos. This is one of the crowning achievements of his college career. And this is coming off, this is in 1970. So this is after John Carlos has staged his famous protest at the 68 Olympics. Perhaps the biggest icon in track and field at the time. And he tries to come into Michigan State. He tries to come into Herbert's house and beat him. Herbert says he's not playing any of that. Before I wrap up his college career, I just want to also talk about Herbert has been a, throughout his life, has been a staunch advocate for for civil rights and for black rights and for uh, equality. So in, uh, in 1972, there was a protest uh, at a basketball game, um, and he joined the other black athletes and activists in a demonstration. Basically, they, they, they do their demonstration at halftime. They're not able to resume the game for like a half hour afterwards because of this protest. And Herbert says, talking about this, we wanted some people who looked like us as teachers, coaches, and officials. We were tired of being ignored. And when you affect the flow of capital, you get people's attention. A lot of teams used to play four or five blacks on the road and two at home. Michigan State has actually been way ahead of the curve in terms of diversity. So even at this young age, he understands disrupt the money. You're going to get some change. Very much an activist, very much defending black rights. But to wrap up his performance in college and competition, he is the world indoor record holder in the 50 and 60 yard dash by the time he graduates. He's the NCAA champion in the 60 yard dash. Of his four years, he is a four time All American between indoor and outdoor. So between the two seasons, a seven time Big Ten finalist. And he does just narrowly miss out on the 72 Olympics. So it's still all a, that, a laudable career. Yeah. An incredible collegiate career. An incredible collegiate career. And obviously, for most people, and especially at this time, the pinnacle of your track and field career is going to be your collegiate career. He actually, he becomes a, a reporter. He becomes a Michigan State reporter immediately out of college. He does have some opportunities immediately following college to continue his playing career. So in the NFL, he is drafted in the 12th round uh, by the Baltimore Colts. Does not go to camp. Does not go to camp, does not sign, but nonetheless, you just see how intriguing just this pure speed is to professional sports organizations. This guy can run, he can probably do some other things. The Toronto Argonauts also tried to recruit him, but he said, look, I have, I have a happy career here as the local sports reporter in Lansing. But then one fateful day, he gets a phone call from Charles O. Finley, who is the owner of the Oakland Athletics. Herbert in recounting this says, I was doing sports at Channel 6 in Lansing. When I got the message, I thought it was a joke. Then I got paged. He said, Herbie, <laughs> I want you to play. And that, that's really like a time capsule. He got paged. He said, Herbie, I want you to play baseball and be a pinch runner. I said, Mr. Finley, I'm going to need a no-cut contract. I know sometimes you just get rid of people. He said, a no-cut contract? The only players who have those are Vita Blue, Catfish Hunter, and Reggie Jackson. Are you telling me you're in the same league as those guys? I said, no, but none of those guys cannot run me. 
Finley's yeah. basically saying, all right, sure, whatever you say, kid. And Herbert says, all right, well, thanks for taking the meeting. And he gets up to leave. Finley calls him back and offers him a one-year no-cut contract with a 20000 signing bonus and 45000 in salary. He would also get a 35000 bonus if the Athletics were to win the World Series this year. This is the 1974 season. He is in line to make 100000 just for pinch running if they win the World Series. Some of his teammates are not as satisfied about this, and you can imagine that. These are guys that came up through the minor leagues, paid their dues, and just because this guy can run fast, he gets a spot on the roster. Reggie Jackson said he's a great athlete, but he's not a baseball player. Raleigh Fingers said the idea was a little crazy, but he can run like crazy. Not, not necessarily a unified dugout, but once Herbert does get there, he does win over all his teammates, even ones that would say specifically, hey, I don't agree with the job that you were brought here to do, but I like you. So he contributes good vibes into the dugout. Very important. Don't hate the player, hate the game. <laughs> What's notable here is, you know, as you alluded with bringing up uh, Gore, James, there are players that are really like a specialist pinch runner. But at least, you know, they'll probably play in the field because they're going to have range in the outfield or maybe they have a strong arm. They can be a pinch hitter here and there. Herbert Washington literally just pinch runs. His entire season, and in fact, his entire career as a baseball player, he does not once appear in the field. He does not once pinch hit. He does not once make an at-bat. He obviously never pitches. The only appearances he ever makes is to sub in in important moments and run the bases. That's all he does. Such a good gig if you can get it. It is a great gig. But as any baseball player would tell you, there's a lot of nuances to it, right? Base running ain't just about speed. Base stealing is especially not just about speed. They get to the 74 ALCS where they play the Orioles. Herbert gets to make two appearances. He's caught stealing both times. Does not record a single stolen base. But doesn't really matter because the Athletics go on to win the series 3-1. And they advance to the World Series. Now, they interviewed the team captain ahead of the World Series, Sal Bando. And he said, I don't think that Washington should be used in the World Series. You know, these games are so important, and he might not have a second chance to make up for any mistakes that he may commit during the series. Game one, he does not appear. Doesn't matter. The Athletics go on the win. Game two, the Athletics go down 3-0. They're down 3-0 entering the ninth. Uh, the Athletics come up in the top of the ninth, and immediately they start getting a rally going. So Sal Bando gets hit by a pitch. Reggie Jackson doubles. They now have second and third with nobody out. Joe Rudy singles to bring them both home. Now uh, enters Mike Marshall in relief. Mike Marshall, notably, also went to Michigan State. The I was about to ask their he... teammates, but he didn't play baseball. He just ran track <laughs> back then. He just ran. They were not teammates. He was just a track runner. Uh, his first batter that he faces, Gene Terrace, he strikes him out. Now with one out, it's time to call on Herb. So big moment. Herbert is pinch running. He's on first base. And... Vince Scully, the great Vince Scully, actually called this. He said, Mike Marshall has a really good move. He needs to be careful out there. At first, he throws over just a very light pickoff attempt, just like, ah, okay. He steps off a couple more times, but doesn't throw over. He's trying to, to essentially bait Herbert, and it is ultimately successful. He does pick him off first base before he can even attempt to steal that bag. Uh, there's now two outs. The tag was made by Steve Garvey, 
who was also a Michigan State alumni. And they then go on to get the out, even the series at one. They, uh, they interview Mike Marshall about it afterwards. And Mike Marshall says, I had never seen him on the base pass until today. I was his teacher. He was my student. I taught him child growth and development. Now, you could think that is some epic smack talk. In fact, it wasn't. That It is actually the actual relationship that they had at Michigan State. He did tutor Herbert Washington and did teach him these things. There was no, like, that would be great smack talk if he actually said that. It is actually just a accurate summation of what their relationship was prior to this game. So Michigan State on Michigan State crime picks him off. With a Michigan State assist. With a Michigan State assist and with a Michigan State tag. Just really everything coming up Sparty in that game too. Now you would think after that, all right, Herbert's not going to get any more chances in this World Series. He does pinch run in games three and games four. Does not get picked off. Does not get caught stealing. But doesn't steal any bases. Doesn't score any runs. Just making an appearance. And ended up that the Athletics did not need him. They go on to win this World Series 4-1. So Herbert does get his 35000 bonus for winning the World Series and collects 100000 And again, this is 1974, so like 100000 then, quite a bit more now. Literally just to run the bases. Does nothing else. They bring him back for the 75 season. He makes 13 appearances, but the Athletics preseason signed a guy named Don Hopkins to also be a base running specialist, but Don Hopkins can also play the field. And the writing was really on the wall when they acquired Matt Alexander, who is also a base running specialist, but also can play the outfield and the infield. So after those 13 appearances, uh, he is released by the Athletics. They told him to stay ready just in case, in case never came. But for his career, he had 105 regular season appearances, appeared in 105 regular season games. Never had an at-bat, never took the field, only as a pinch runner. His yeah. stolen base is not as good as you would think it would be. And again, this lends itself to how important all the other things of base running are. Mm-hmm. In 48 attempts, he has 31 successful stolen bases, 17 times he's caught stealing. Is that yeah, you want about 75%. Numbers? Is that just the regular season numbers? Because I know you said in the playoffs he got caught three times, so... So if we were to count that, then... Well, so technically when he got picked off, that doesn't count as a caught stealing. True. But if we factor in those two times he's thrown out in the ALCS, it would have been 31 for 50. He does score 33 runs. He goes down as one of only seven players, uh, non-pitcher category, in MLB history, with more game appearances than plate appearances. Now, I tried to look up who the others were. I know for a fact that Archibald Moonlight Graham is one of those. (laughs) Uh, with his one-game appearance and his no-plate appearances. um, I couldn't find any others. So, an interesting link there to the field of dreams. As I mentioned, he's the only player to have pinch runner listed as his position on a baseball card. Never before, never since has that been done. But there is is some interesting post-career nuggets to hit on here. So, nuggets is, is a bit of foreshadowing. So, Growing up in Michigan, fast cars, as an athlete, fast running, the natural conclusion would then be fast food. So he opened six McDonald's restaurants in upstate New York, then later acquires 19 more in Ohio. So he has 25 McDonald's franchises that he runs and owns. He is a continued mainstay in Ohio. Uh, He is actually, he he is a part of a 
minority ownership group of the Cincinnati Reds. So he has a minor stake in a minority ownership group, but nonetheless, technically a co-owner of the Reds. And he was the founder and owner of the Youngstown Steelhounds, which was a minor league hockey franchise in the CHL. Uh, they ran from 2005 to 2008, ultimately folded because it just didn't make financial sense. But did own a hockey team. They were affiliated with the Columbus Blue Jackets. Um, his son, Terrell, also ran at Michigan State and became the general manager of his McDonald's franchising company in 2012. Now, McDonald's part is so good. Well, it gets better. Terrell was the general manager of this franchising company. His franchising company no longer exists because in 2021, McDonald's settled out of court with Herbert Lee Washington for $33.5 million after he filed a lawsuit claiming discrimination in their franchising practices. Essentially, he was being denied franchise opportunities in more affluent areas where these were only being granted to white owners. Herbert calls that out, says that's bullshit. McDonald's settles out of court, admits no wrongdoing as these things go. But $33.5 million tells me you might have done something a little wrong if you're paying that much to tell this guy to just drop it. Legally he, speaking, he had a point. He had a point. Herbert had a point. So legally speaking, as Xavier would know, they admit no wrongdoing. But there was probably some wrongdoing. So settles with McDonald's for $33.5 million, And as part of the settlement, he uh, does no longer own any McDonald's franchises. So... Herbert Lee Washington, a man of speed throughout his life, be it the automobile industry with his parents, be it himself on the track and on the base pads, and in running his McDonald's franchises. And also, throughout his entire life, a staunch advocate for the black community and making sure that their rights are being respected and that they are not being discriminated against. So, Herbert Lee Washington... Speedy in all aspects, speedy to demand justice, and a great footnote in the history of Major League Baseball. I like Herbert Lee Washington. I like the fact that Michigan State was doing you know, good stuff with diversity. Even now, we still have issues with that. Heck, I think like two weeks ago, I read an article about how uh, Temple and Maryland are the only D1 schools that have president, athletic director, and football coach who are all African-American. And Temple is yeah, the only D1 school among all that have African-American coaches for both football, men's and women's basketball, AD, and president. So the fact that only one school has all of those where, you know, 60, 70 are probably just white guys doing that. And this is 50 years after Herbert Lee Washington started talking about this. It's, it's, it's good to note schools that were doing good things, even if it was so, so, so long ago. Good to give them a shout out. Well, interesting to know that MSU has that and then Michigan has the Fab Five later on. I like that both sides of that rivalry have, uh, have that there is something else for those people to be rivals about while they continue to act like their schools still matter in the larger national conversation. Well, I mean, in defense of that rivalry, the botch punt is like the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Okay, if we're talking college football rivalries, botch punt or kick six. I did I call say, Diaz screaming after the kick six from my basement in New York. You did, and, and you don't even like either team. I don't. <laughs> it, that was just an incredible moment. I mean, for me, like, so the kick six will always have a fine place in my heart because I was catering a wedding 
that afternoon, and the groom's family was all from Michigan, and they were all diehard Wolverines fans. So, like, we had where, where I got the drinks was the bar area, so that's live cable. But where the wedding was, was in our area that had no TV. So, like, they're just, like, watching on their phones. And, like, I got their round of drinks. And as I'm getting the round of drinks, I see the botched punt. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. And then I turn back the corner. And, like, I see them. They're all, like, high-fiving and, like, hugging. Like, all right, we got it. We just got to punt the ball. And I'm like, (laughs) I just lied back and I waited for it to happen. And the second it happened, I just came... I am so sorry. Here are all of your drinks. I'm going to be right back with another round for all of you. I am so sorry that happened. That was very kind of you. That was good customer service. I had had to let them have their moment. You would have done well in one of Herbert Lee Washington's McDonald's, I'm sure. (laughs) But if, if you guys are all set, then I'm, I'm ready to go ahead and share. Here's what I'm going to preface this with. We've often talked about too good to guy, and I'm going to go ahead and admit that I think I'm about to talk about, at worst, the second greatest athlete of all time. That being said, while I'm certain that the two of you might recognize this name, no way in hell that the average person would. So I think we've still got eligibility for Babe <laughs> Diedrichsen Zaharias. Yeah, I, I kind of had a feeling this was where you were going to go. The original Babe. Not exactly the original Babe, actually. Uh, in fact, Babe Diedrichsen Zaharias claims that she got her nickname because of Babe Ruth. Because at one point in a childhood baseball game, she hit five home runs in one game. Her mother disputes this and says that she just called her Babe since she was a child. This is her mother, Hannah Diedrichsen, from Norway. Her father's name is Ole, O-L-E. And the two of them have several kids. She is the sixth of seven. And she's good at baseball, but she's good at a lot of different sports. She is, by the time that she's done with high school, a baseball player, an expert diver, a bowler, a roller skater, and a track and field star, all in addition to being an all-American basketball player. So this is all by the end of high school, or rather when she leaves high school, because Babe Diedrichsen, in classic jock stereotype fashion, is also not particularly bright. She's held back in eighth grade and then just leaves high school in, in, <laughs> once she's old enough to like move out of her hometown in Texas. This is now like 1930, 1931. She's this all-American basketball player, and all she wants to do is continue to play basketball. So what she does is she moves to Dallas, and she gets a job as a secretary for the Employees Casualty Insurance Company of Dallas. This is a completely made-up position for her, just so that they can have her play on their AAU, Amateur Athletic Union, Golden Cyclones basketball team. Made a job just so that she can be this. This is basically the plot of Ben Stiller's team in Dodgeball. They've just been hired exclusively so that she can play basketball, and it 100% works in her very first season in 1931. The Golden Cyclones win the AAU championship. She is... It wins every single personal award that this league has. I'm not going to list them. I promise you, if you look up an award from the 1931 season, she won it. And after the basketball season, she said, you know what? I do enjoy track and field also. The Amateur Athletic Union is essentially like the governing body of track and field because this is in the 1930s before college track and field is going to be the main feeder for the Olympics. And so she goes ahead and goes to the 1932 AAU championships once again for her team that is sponsored by the Employees Casualty Insurance Company of Dallas. She is sent to the AAU championships. She competes in eight out of 10 of the possible events. She wins five of them as the sole possessor of first place and ties for first in the sixth. This is enough for the team to win the team championship 
despite the fact that she is the only member of that team. <laughs> this is, in fact, so good that now Babe Dietrich and Zaharias, who, again, got this job just so she could play basketball, is going to be asked to come to the 1932 Olympics for the track and field team. This is the 1932 Los Angeles Olympics. It's the first time they ever hold in Los Angeles. Fun fact, that's because Los Angeles is the only city to submit a bid for this Olympics because it is in the middle of the Great Depression. And so just by default, they hold it in Los Angeles. At this time, women are limited to three events. So she clearly is very, very good at at least six of the eight that she did. But she's going to have to hold it to three. She decides to do the high jump, the javelin throw, and the 80-meter hurdles, the first time that this is held for women at, uh, the, when, at the Summer Olympics. So she is not allowed to do any of the rest of her events. But in the high jump, she goes ahead and she in the first couple rounds, ties fellow U.S. athlete Gene Sully. They end up with a tied mark of 1.657 meters. They do one more jump off. She is disqualified for improper jumping procedure, so she has to settle for the silver in that. She does not settle for the silver in anything else. She goes ahead and goes to the javelin where she wins the gold with the Olympic record for 43.69 meters. Nice. And then she goes ahead and goes to the 80-meter hurdles. In her first heat, she ties the world record of 11.8 seconds. And then in the final, she does go ahead and break that record with a time of 11.7 seconds. So she walks away from her three events with two golds and a silver after a runoff for that last silver. And is ready to just completely ride this wave of fame and try her hand at a couple other things. Now, real quick, I do want to mention that lest we think she exclusively does sports... Two of the things that she decides to do at this time, she's an accomplished harmonica player, and so she tours the vaudeville circuits for a while, just doing a harmonica act. She also is a very, very good seamstress. In fact, she very often makes all of her athletic clothing for all of these events, sewing it herself. She wins a state fair sewing competition. She claims that it was the 1931 State Fair of Texas, which is like one of the state fairs in the world. It was actually only the South Texas State Fair. Big controversy in the, in the state fair community. But that's not the only thing. She does also decide to go ahead and try billiards for a little bit. Not very good at that one. Well, let's keep trying some other things, you know. Not really a way for her to do amateur basketball now she's moved on from this, but she does find a way to do some barnstorming basketball. There's this... Um, cult called House of David that exists in New York State, and it's one of those ones where all the guys have to wear very long beards. At one point, this cult that needed to make money kind of starts running a barnstorming team with all of these guys still wearing their beards, with that kind of being the act. And so Babe Diedrichson Zaharias puts on a fake beard with this cult team and goes on barnstorms with both their baseball and basketball teams. There are not a lot of records for their games because this was a cult that was barnstorming with a bunch of bearded people, but supposedly she's their greatest player ever. She even does get to take a little bit of Major League Spring training action. She's going to go ahead and do that for three different teams. Four total innings in spring training in 1934. She throws a little bit for the Philadelphia Athletics, a little bit for the St. Louis Cardinals, and a little bit for the New Orleans Pelicans. All of this has been a long career for Babe. Her fame has run out from her electric Olympic career after her All-American basketball career and, and championship. It is time to retire and just play some golf. Babe Dietrichson Harris actually decides, hey, you know what? I, I kind of like this golf thing. 
Uh, and I should say Babe Diedrichson. Harry's is about to come in. Babe Diedrichson starts playing golf in 1934. And by 1938, she's good enough that she actually competes in the Los Angeles Open, which is a PGA event. The reason she competes in a professional golf association event, she's denied amateurship because she's made money from all of these other sports. And so she's like, well, if you're going to make me maybe not compete in amateur events, then fine, I'm, I'm going to go play on a PGA event. So she goes to the Los Angeles Open in 1938. Does not make the cut this time. Does make a very important connection, though. She is partnered with a Greek-American Midwestern professional wrestler by the name of George Zaharias. Uh, this is nine months later, going to become her husband. This is when she's officially Babe Dietrichskin Zaharias. And also definitely has kind of a effect on her next couple of years building her brand. Because what she's going to do now is, in order to get that amateur golf status, she has to give up every other sport for three years to regain it. During that time, she's going to become one of the world's most popular golfers, partially because she is getting the theatrics from her husband and is developing, you know, catchphrases, uh, often will say when she comes there, the babe is here, who's coming in second? Or things like when she's at the green and, and about to, uh, the, you know, make her drive, she's like, time to loosen my girdle and let it fly. So she's doing all of this, and then as soon as she becomes an amateur, she 100% backs it up and wins 17 straight amateur events. So it is just an absolute force of nature in that sport and isn't even done with the PGA stuff. She's actually going to come back and qualify for three other PGA events that she's going to try and compete in. The Los Angeles Open twice more and the Tucson Open once. And makes the cut in two of them. These are all the Los Angeles Open twice and the Tucson Open in Tucson, Arizona once. Makes the cut, never finishes higher than 33rd. But she's going to be the only woman to make the cut in a PGA event for almost 60 years until Anika Sorenstrom and Michelle Way are two of the, I think, four or six now that have done it. Michelle so Wei. just on a whim, like, has taken up golf and become a woman that's going to set trailblazing standards for years. Finally, in 1948, she decides, I'm going to apply to compete in the U.S. Open. I'm clearly a good enough golfer to do this. How can you tell me I can't compete in the U.S. Open? And they decide, well, because it was intended for men. Straight up, their justification for it is, it's a tournament for men. Ooh. Well, here's, here's the good thing. Babe Dietrichs is not going to just, like, settle for that. What she's going to do instead is find 12 other women that will meet with her in Wichita, Kansas. The WPGA has folded at this point but she is going to get them to found the LPGA. This is the initial 13 founders of it. And in 1950, the inaugural year of the LPGA, she has arguably her greatest golfing season ever. She wins three different women's majors, becomes later on the fastest ever to reach 10 wins. That is a record that stands to this date. This is kind of the crowning achievement of the fact that she has been the best women's golfer for over a decade. And she's also everyone's favorite golfer. So this is, it's kind of like, how Andre the Giant, you know, his crowning moment in the WWE so early, it's in WrestleMania after he, uh, WrestleMania 3, I did not say the number, it's in WrestleMania 3, and that's after over a decade of Andre the Giant being the wrestler that no one beat, and so he doesn't even have a, a championship in that, but it's it's a way for this that wasn't granted the stage that they deserve to have it. Also in the early 50s, she she meets someone. She meets someone by the name of Betty Dodd, a fellow golfer. Her and George Zaharias, they've been on the rocks a little bit. Their, their marriage is not the best. And she becomes incredibly good friends with Betty Dodd. Uh, like, really good friends with Betty Dodd. <laughs> like, they, like, they record a single 
that is a novelty love song where they are both singing and also Babe Dietrichs and Zaharias is playing the harmonica, because remember, she's a very accomplished harmonica player. Uh, that song is called I Felt a Little Teardrop. They released that in 1953. This is also about when Dodd moves in with the couple. They're very good friends. As good friends do. Part of the reason she moves in is in 1953. Zaharias has been dealing with like illness for a while up until this point, and this is when she finds out that it is colon cancer. And so she has to miss, like, two years of professional competition at this point for surgeries and recovery. But she does come back, and in 1954, she wins not only a tournament named after her, the Babe Zaharias Open in Beaumont, Texas. She also wins her final major at the U.S. Women's Open with a colostomy bag from her surgery. (laughs) She becomes the second oldest winner of a women's major of all time at that time that has dropped a third, but this makes her not only the fastest to 10 professional wins, not only the fastest to 20 professional wins, but after a two-year break for cancer recovery, to this day, to 30 professional wins. That is, as I said, her final one. She does have a resurgence of the colon cancer. Big thing at this point is that a lot of people did not get treatment for cancer, because this is the 50s, and people were stupid and thought that they had to just suck it up all the time. And she's one of the early like celebrities say, hey, I have cancer. I'm going to now speak for the American Cancer Society out loud all the time, because I'm Babe Dietrich Gonzaharius, and I'm always just going to speak out loud all the time about whatever it is that I'm deciding to do, because the babe's here. So she's one of the like very earliest people to kind of be a huge national cancer advocate. Dwight Eisenhower commends her for this. And uh, in 1956, that cancer does finally take her out. A couple posthumous honors that she's had. A golf course that the Saharias owned in Tampa does have her name. To this day, it is still the Babe Dietrichs and Saharias course. Also, there is a Babe Dietrichs and Saharias Museum in Beaumont, Texas, where she won the Babe Dietrichs and Saharias Open and is also buried. And when I said one of the two best athletes of all time, Jim Thorpe is the only person I think can stand to this. She does have one honor that I feel the need to mention, but is a little bittersweet. She has received the Presidential Medal of Freedom. She received this from uh, the 45th President of the United States, Donald J. Trump, on January 7th, 2021, when several golfers were awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom after some stuff happened the day before. After events occurred. <laughs> after some people that probably would not have liked Babe Dietrichs and Zaharias very much were, you know, hanging around the U.S. Capitol. So, Any last name with a Z they're a little suspicious of. And any woman who, you know, is showing up and just kicking ass and taking names, not the biggest fan. But that's, that's the story of Babe Dietrichs and Zaharias. Just an absolute icon. I, I'll clarify, when we were talking about her and Betty Dodd being friends, everyone says, like, yeah, no, clearly they were in love with one another, both romantically and sexually, but at no point was that ever officially put out. The Olympics does claim her as, like, the first uh, lesbian gold medal award winner, and that's almost certainly true, and it is great that she can be looked up to as in that way. Does feel a little weird to say that without like confirmation from the person. Uh, your mileage may vary on that. Either way, though, Babe Dietrichs and Zaharias absolutely kicks ass. That is that is my nominee this week. The, I what I think is important when there's an athlete of stature is that they use their platform um, for good, and I think that's you know just an incredible example of it. Like when we take 
you know, cancer and like illnesses seriously now as we do now if it weren't for her early advocacy. Who's to know, right? But either way, I think that's incredibly important. And to just dominate in so many different sports, too. I always thought it was impressive, like, when you tell the Jackie Robinson stories. Like, oh, you know, Jackie, like, played football and basketball and baseball and ran track at UCLA. And Jackie baseball wasn't... was arguably his worst sport of all of those during his college oh, career. He, I think he hit, like, under 100 in college. Yeah, like, it's one thing to play a lot of sports. It's another thing to dominate each of those sports, which is what the babe did. So, I, it's incredible and to me it's like it's a little absurd that she isn't more like talked about and spoken of because i mean that inarguably the greatest female athlete of all time and very easily can make the argument that just like you can remove the qualifier like just greatest athlete of all time jim thorpe does not have any novelty singles that i know of that he released jim thorpe didn't ever wear a fake beard so he could barnstorm with a cult Jim Does Thorpe he... have a golf tournament named after him that he then won. He almost certainly has golf tournaments named after him. I can't imagine that he won that one. Noted non-harmonica player Jim Thorpe. <laughs> Jim Thorpe, look, she lied about winning the State Fair of Texas. Jim Thorpe would kill someone if he could even sniff the South Texas State Fair. People take us seriously down there, man. Especially in Texas. Everything, everything's bigger down in Texas. Including the disputes. If we're if we're to get to discussion, I will admit we've we've said before like, Babe Dee Zaharias should be in several Hall of Fames. Like I don't want to. I I, I assume I, that I she worry. is in multiple already. She's correct? A, yes no she's she's in a number of them. But like there is a way that I worry we might besmirch her by by bringing her in versus Darreners that are. That, that's or, what uh, I was thinking Herbert too. And, you know you you did preface the the, the story with that. Yeah. She's one of the greatest athletes of all time. It's really Absolutely. hard to say that she's, you know, just the guy because greatest of all time is specifically not the idea of just a guy thing. And you know, we, we've made qualifiers in the past where it's like, well, Alfredo Di Stefano, you know, is one of the greatest club players of all time. But we talked about international careers and he was, didn't have a sparkling international career. But if we're just talking about multi-sport athletes and who is a guy in those. Zaharis was incredible at everything she did. He wasn't great of, at, at uh, billiards. The only record they have of her billiards is there was like one multi-day match that she played against uh, someone, Ruth McGinnis, who was like a champion billiards player at the time. And it is noted that Babe Zaharis badly lost the match to Ruth McGinnis. Okay, so one out of 30 sports she tried in her life she <laughs> bad at. The rest she has Olympic golds, LPGA championships in Hall of Fame admissions. Here's a basketball. We say one. She is also the only one of these three to have any kind of major league experience who did not win a World Series. So that you got that. This is true. I feel like you're grasping at straws, James. (laughs) I think she's too great. I think she's too. No, she's very, very good. She's very, very good. And. That makes it tough because, like, Darren Erst and, and Herbert Lee Washington, but Herbert Lee Washington, I think, edges out Darren Erstad for me right now. The pinch runner on the baseball card thing is too juicy. So yeah. it's it's a question, I think, of is Babe Diedrichson Zahari is too good to beat out Herbert Lee Washington's incredible guyness of, like, oh, do you know your your, your bar comment, Diaz? You know that, right. that guy that's the only one to ever be a pinch runner <clears throat> on his baseball card? It's, it's a conversation starter. I mean, here's. This is already like, 
I'm looking forward to future episodes. Like I would say, like on relitigation, the babe should just be in. Like I, I think it, it it elevates our hall to induct the babe. But if we are focused on this week on this topic, I would even say like I think Erstad was too good of a punter. It was yeah. actually very successful in Swan games. Herb got a baseball career basically on like not I don't want to say like a joke, but like somewhat of a niche was at best average at that one thing. So I would argue for, for Herbert and I, I think the the McDonald's angle afterwards taking on corporate America. <laughs> that's that's another uh another 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 point for Herb. So that would that would be me arguing for Herb. See, I'm leaning towards Herb just because I told you beforehand I don't wanna I don't wanna vote for my own guy three weeks in a row. Feels weird to me. But it, there is the thought that Herb was not really a multi-sport athlete. He was really good at running in one direction, and the other parts of baseball that come with the running he was not great at, hence the spot stealing and pickoff in World Series. But then we're on the other side, it's Babe is too good at too many sports. Herb, I think, is only good at one sport. I don't want to vote for Darren Erstad, who was good at two sports, but not incredible at two sports. So I'm in well, a bit here's- of a pickle here. My interpretation, Savior, and, and part of why I went for the babies, I thought we were kind of going for as many sports as we could. I did think <laughs> like the idea of multi-sport athlete was how many sports can we get? That is and important qualified. Was not so Herb Washington's got what, max two? Track, baseball, and I mean technically he is in the NFL record books as a draftee. That's so okay. Yeah, we'll give him three. Did he ever Good play football? Like oh, no. did or- <laughs> But they wanted him to. First, Ed, we have state champion in track. We have hockey. We have NCAA national champion in football and World Series winner. So as much as I think Erstad makes the most sense per this category, I said I will not vote for my own person. So I will leave the. Uh, it's going to be between Babe and, and Herb. What are you two thinking? I'm not going to lie. You got me coming around on Erstad a little bit. Well, you said this earlier too. If it's if if both of you pick Erstad, it can be overruling myself. So you know, it's okay, Xavier. This was this was your category. I want you to just kind of like speak again. What was in your mind when you said that? I want to rehear your interpretation of this, and I want to use that to kind of make this final deliberation. So inspired by Charlie Ward, who was Heisman Trophy winner, national championship winner, and first round NBA draft pick, and then also inspired by you know, Bo Jackson or people like The Rock who did multiple sports. Like, I was inspired by the fact that we know of people who went from one sport to the other and excelled because we, we think of them as some of the greatest athletes of all time. Jim Thorpe, one of them. So, but there are plenty of people who in more than one sport are not considered or don't have that same name recognition, that same... Yeah, they were clearly the best. Uh, so that that's where that's where I was thinking, and that's you know why I went with a guy like Erstad, who, despite you know winning some some team achievements, no one is ever going to say he was the best athlete. He was not the best punter. Like he was not the best infielder or best outfielder. He was really good at these things for a little bit of a, like a little bit of time. So that that's what I was thinking of, you know, when when I came up with this topic. If even your guy, who I got, like Ersted, very appealing. Ersted won a championship. 
in the two sports he pursued the most. I think with that in mind, and we're okay with success and we're going wide body, I think I, I think I have to lay mine down for the babe. I can almost guarantee you that I will, as a Veterans Committee member, vote for Herbert Lee Washington later on. But if, if that's where X was coming from, and even his guy is coming in with like that kind of heat, I think that the babe wins this category. What do you think, Diaz? I mean, I think Herb's story is just so unique. Like, there's that it will never be attempted again, I think, because it didn't really go that well. <laughs> what he did, I would be okay with the babe winning. I think it elevates our hall, maybe besmirches her great name a little bit. But, you know. Babe, babe Dietrich says the hardest would get a kick out of this stupid thing. I'm, I'm cool with, with, with Babe, although I do just want to say that we really should be careful in the future about, you know, taking people who are too good. I, I think for this category, just based on what, what's happened today, it should be Babe. She, she should be the best, per, the, the, the best athlete in the Hall of Guy, and this should not be passed in the future. I mean, there's like maybe 10 athletes you can name that are even competitive, and I don't think any of them would qualify as guy. Yeah, we're not going to say, no. we're not going to induct Jim Thorpe or Michael Jordan or any, anybody, anybody like that into the Hall of Guy. I think Michael Jordan is not in the conversation for greatest athlete of all well, time. he's a multi-sport guy athlete. who's a Hall of Could have brought up he, Jordan. Could have. Danny Ainge is a better two-sport athlete than Michael Jordan. Danny, Danny Ainge was a good Toronto Blue Jays player and just Danny decided Ainge to go back to the Celtics. Michael Jordan was so much better at basketball than Danny Ainge was just because he was so much better at basketball than everybody else. He, like, he, he went to baseball for fun or gambling, whoever you, whatever you believe, and, and then went back and won three more titles after that. Like, he is a multi-sport I mean, this, athlete, regardless of how you feel about his time with the Barons. <laughs> Look, I'm good. I'm Diaz. I'm going to again practice a hot take here. If we are talking multi-sport athletes, Danny Ainge is a better multi-sport athlete than Michael Jordan. Full stop. Full stop makes it a good take. Uh, I don't know that I agree with it, but you know that's what that's what a good take is it's supposed to divide the audience. I'm learning. But yes, if I may, one thing that does not divide the audience, and one thing that we are unanimous in is in our election of the AAU women's basketball champion, Olympic gold medalist, and founding member of the LPGA, and perhaps its greatest competitor ever, Dave Didrikson Zaharias. Welcome to the Hall of Guy. What, a, what an honor it is to, to have her there, and what an honor it has been to have you all learn about these these three this, what a fucking murderer's row this week really just outstanding work on all of our part uh we're gonna give ourselves pats on the back here and that's all we got at at this time we can say no matter what the the 76ers miami heat series is over so regardless of how that turned out just think of justin diaz and that's that's all i have to say well one thing real quick james Jets and Ravens play each other first week of the season, September 11th in the in the Meadowlands. Oh, you want to come watch your team lose? Maybe. We're probably gonna lose, so you know I do like the Meadowlands. Go birds, go flying objects. And with that, I've been James. I've been the very special guest Xavier. And I'm Diaz. And as Bill Rafferty once said, "How about the onions on that guy?"
Thank <laughs> you.